to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Today we're going to be talking about being led by God. I'm going to open up with a little story, and, um, and then we're going to jump into various scriptures to kind of see what the, what the Word of God says about that. Um, a man went into his boss's office, and he excitedly laid out this uh, idea that he claimed would propel the company to the next level in the industry. His boss tried to listen patiently, but it was the third or fourth time in recent months that he proposed an idea. None of them amounted to anything. It seemed as though his ideas were really nothing more than immature and undeveloped passions instead of well-reasoned plans to advance the company. So when he tried to implement them, they were unsuccessful. On the other hand, there was another employee who seemed to have really well thought through proposals, uh, even running them by several people in her department who tried to encourage her to take it to the next level and take the next step and put these proposals into action. But she never trusted that her ideas had any merit. So she never even presented them to the boss and never followed through. One of these employees was eager to take action, but wasn't patient enough to put together an organized plan. The other one went through the process of thoughtfully developing a strategy to solve a problem, but was unwilling to step out. This kind of... uh, Uh, situation can occur in our walk with the Lord too. It can have similar characteristics. We We may desire to be in God's will, but we're constantly moving out ahead of him instead of waiting on his direction. I don't know about you, but it's happened to me uh, more times than I want to mention. Or we might clearly hear from God But for some reason, we don't trust that he's really leading us. Look with me at this verse in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I'm going to, just for this one verse, use the NIV. And God says, see, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants after them. This is an interesting verse because it kind of says two different things. Uh, We find this verse in the account of God giving the land to the nation of Israel through Moses, who told the people that God clearly promised to give them the land of Canaan. But they still had to step out in faith believing God's promise and his direction for them as a nation. And it almost seems like that verse is contradictory. On the one hand, God is saying he's giving them the land. And on the other hand, he's saying go in and possess the land. So which one is it, God? 
Are you giving it to us or do we have to take possession of it? Well, I think in this instance and in, even if we make application to our own lives, the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he's promising. And yes, he's also commanding us to do something. Many times in the scriptures we see God's promises and his commands go hand in hand. His promise, I will give you the land, and his command, now go take possession of it, were both necessary for the people to be effective in following God's lead. This is how God works many times in our lives. We need to hear his word and then move out in faith in response to that. Uh, On the other side of it, an unfruitful Christian life is often the result of not fully understanding and applying these principles. Sometimes we'll do one at the exclusion of the other, when most times both are necessary. And I think one of the reasons we tend not to apply these principles can come down to really two different things that happen in in our walk with the Lord. And the first thing is living in fear. Living in fear. First, uh, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The scriptures assure us that fear and faith are mutually exclusive. When we live in fear, although God's promise still stands, it remains unfulfilled. Now, remember, there are some promises that God makes that, are, um, that he's going to do no matter what. There's no determination on, on our part at all. But many of the promises have a part that we need to play in order for them to come about. Now, one of the other things that we might do in response to hearing God's command is often we'll do it in the flesh. Sometimes we'll do it in, or we won't do it in because of fear, but sometimes we'll step out in the flesh. In John 6, 63, it says, it is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. If we want to truly be fruitful for the kingdom of God, whatever we do must be led and empowered by the spirit of God. So today we're going to take a look at these two two different things, two different conclusions that we draw, two different uh, characteristics in our walk with the Lord that will prevent us from actually fulfilling the leading of the Lord in our lives. And a lot of you may ask, well, how do we know that God is leading us? You know, even when we have things that come up in our lives or changes um, you know, Pastor Joe announced uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago that, that I'm in the midst of a transition in my life. How do we know that God is leading us through those things? Well, I, I've been through many different transitions in my walk with the Lord over the years. And I've recognized that there are certain things that kind of have to happen in order for me to really know that it's coming from the Lord. So we're going to explore these two things, fear and flesh, the two different responses, um, incorrect, really, responses to being led by God. First, the fear response. What does fear do? Fear often paralyzes us, doesn't it? It prevents us, 
a lot of times from moving forward, even though we may have clearly heard from the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I really know it's God, but for some reason there's some fear that's preventing me from stepping out. We don't move out in response to the promise because maybe we doubt God's goodness, maybe we doubt his ability or his wisdom. We hear God say, I've given you this land, but we refuse to take possession of it. We refuse to step out in faith. That reminds me of the account early in the history of the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 13. It says, then they told him and said, we went to the land. This is, this is Moses who sent out the spies, remember, into the land to see what it, what it was all about. And he said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. So it was a, it was a beautiful land. And then in verse 28, it says, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And then in verse, jumping down to verse 32, it says, And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through, through which we have gone has, as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. So the spies went out into the land and came back to Moses and said, Yes, the land is awesome, but the inhabitants are too powerful for us. And although Caleb tried to convince the people to take possession of the land, reminding them of God's promise, God's promise is, I will give you this land, right? In the end, there were other voices, other voices that won out, other voices that the people heard louder than the voice of God. And so fear spread throughout all the nation. Has that ever happened to you? I know it's happened to me. You've clearly heard from God about something, maybe a job change or a move or a relationship. And instead of believing God, you get paralyzed because of fear. And maybe you'll tell others, and maybe you'll seek counsel, and maybe they'll give you their opinion, and maybe their voices become louder than God's voice. Maybe your voice of doubt becomes louder than God's voice. I know as we go through the book of Job, as we've done over the past year or two, we see many times Job's friends giving Job counsel, but mischaracterizing God, misrepresenting God in that counsel. And Job started listening to their voices until he began to doubt and question and mischaracterize God himself. Most times, God will give us direction, and then he will use others to confirm that. But sometimes we give more authority to other voices instead of God. And God always has to be the ultimate authority in our lives to lead us and to guide us, to direct us to where he wants us to go, what he wants us to do. Reminds me, too, of this other Old Testament character, Gideon. Gideon was a leader in the nation of Israel. He was used mightily of God. 
But there's a story that shows Gideon's humanity, his flawed nature, which we all have, and I think we can relate to. And in Judges chapter 11, it gives this account, and it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of value, valor. And Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. You see how circumstances can kind of cloud our view of God? They heard these stories about, the, obviously, the crossing of the Red Sea and, and the miracles that God did in the wilderness. But now, because of their situation, because of their circumstances, because of fear, they mischaracterize God. But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him, Gideon, and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? What a great question. Have I not sent you? Do you ever hear God asking that question? Have I not sent you? Have I not led you? Have I not given you direction and guidance in this? Why are you in fear? Have I not sent you? In verse 15, so he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. My family's small, and I'm the smallest in the small family. What can you do through me, God? What can I do? And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Gideon is an interesting character here. He hears from the Lord. He understands that God is going to be with him, that he's leading him, that he's guiding him through this. And yet he's in fear because he sees the circumstances around him. He received a powerful word from God that he would be with Gideon when he went against the Midianite army, who was oppressing the Israelites for years. But he seemed to ignore the voice of God, telling him that he would be with him. He kept looking at his own inadequacies, instead of the unlimited capability of an all-powerful God. Don't we do that sometimes? Well, God, I, who am I? I can't do this. So Gideon doubted. And verse 17 says he even doubted that it was God's voice. You know, he started to doubt so much that he couldn't really hear, couldn't recognize God's voice leading and guiding him through this. Now, before we're too harsh on Gideon... I think we've all been there. I think we've all done that. We forget that with God, everything, anything is possible. 
We're too concerned or focused on our own inability to do much for the kingdom on our own. And we forget that God will empower us by the Holy Spirit to accomplish anything he has directed us to do. There's an old saying that says, where God guides, God provides. And he will do that. He'll empower us. We might think also that it sounds so impossible that we question whether whether this is truly God's voice speaking to us. But isn't that really basically human nature, just doubting like that? But Gideon goes further. He kind of doubles down on his doubt. We're going to look at this next part of the account in verses 36 through 40. And and it says, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So look, isn't that a strange way of putting it? Gideon says, God, if you're going to do what you said, then I have to kind of test you (laughs) for my own mind. But he already said he was going to do it. But Gideon has this kind of this test. And he said, and so, and, and it was so, when he rose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. So God obliged Gideon. And it says, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me. But let me speak just once more, lest let me test, I pray. Those two words, I don't know if those two words should go together. Let me test you, God, I pray. Just once more with the fleece. Now let, and let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. So, okay, God, you showed me one way. The fleece was wet, the, dry, the ground was dry. Now show me that the fleece will be dry and the ground will be wet. And God did so that night. How gracious is is our God, really? How gracious is our God? You know, it's like, God, don't be angry. But let me try it this way. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. You know, God obliged Gideon, fulfilled his request to show him a sign But I don't think that means that this is a pattern that we should necessarily follow as Christians. You know, some people ask, you know, is laying out a fleece a biblical method method for confirming God's leading in our lives? Confirming that God is speaking to us. Is asking for a sign from God something we should necessarily do? And I think a lot of us get kind of caught up in this a little bit where they where they believe that they're hearing from God, they want to step out in faith, but they kind of wait for a sign. What's that sign? Well, it could be various things. Gideon knew that he was treading on thin ice because he asked God not to be angry with him. So he kind of knew that this was not the right thing to do. But I think there are a lot of lessons that we can take from this account, make application to our lives. First, like I said before, how gracious is God that even when we ask him and ask him maybe even in 
disbelief or with doubt that he still is gracious to show us and patient, long-suffering with us. Because Gideon really demonstrated weak faith here. But second, I think we, we can understand that even when we do get a sign from God, when he's gracious enough to do that, we don't necessarily still believe him. So it kind of shows us the flawed nature of, of our own character in this. Obviously, the graciousness, the patience of God. But then, you know, we tend to still doubt. But Gideon didn't have what we have. He didn't have the full word of God, the revelation of God's word, like we do. We, see have, we have the Old and New Testaments, the full revelation of God speaking to his people. And then through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we also have that third person of the Trinity that will guide and direct us, that will give us wisdom. You know, signs are more an experiential thing. Sometimes signs can be even an emotional thing. But those things don't necessarily line up with what God is saying. They don't always line up with God's word. So we need to be careful about asking for a sign from God before we move into his plan. You know, Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 12. And in verses 38 and 39, he says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, Jesus was making these proclamations about his death and his resurrection. And it was such a hard thing for people to understand that they, the religious leaders here, sought a sign. Show us something, God. And he goes back. Remember, Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, three nights. That is a, a symbol of Jesus being in the tomb for three days and three nights and then rising again, Jonah finally was able to get out of the belly of the whale. But if the religious leaders were really seeking the truth, which I don't think they were here, God had already given them evidence. They, this, is the, this is the New Testament time. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophecies of the Old Testament to understand what Jesus was telling them. Sometimes, though, we don't really want to hear the truth. We want God to confirm our idea of truth. That's not the same thing. But if we continue to be attentive to God's voice and do not live in fear, then we won't have to lay out a fleece. We, don't ha we won't have to ask God for a sign. Now, he, he may graciously give confirmation about something that we're praying about. And he does that on his own because he's gracious and because he wants us to be sure that we're hearing from him. But we don't have to necessarily ask for that. So this leads us now to our second possible incorrect response to God's leading in our lives. And that's the flesh response. That's the flesh response. 
Genesis 12, 1 and 2 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. These were God's first words to Abraham. At this time, his name was Abram, concerning a homeland for his offspring. But there's something in these verses that always just amazed me. And that is how God told Abram to move. Notice that he doesn't tell Abram where to go. He just tells him to go. He tells him, get out of your country. Now this is, I mean, imagine God saying, okay, pick up from your roots. Get uncomfortable a little bit. And go. And wait on me, I'll show you where. Well, that's not how we do things. Is it? I know when we, when we get into our cars and we need directions, the first thing we put into the, to the navigation system is what? Is the destination. Or else we, sometimes we get paralyzed sitting in our driveway because, well, which direction do we even go in? But God was asking Abram here to trust him, to trust him and go and that he would lead him to a place that he would show him. That kind of faith is just is, is difficult for us. Let's, let's just say it truthfully. That's not easy. Trust in God. Trust in God. And then remain close to God so that you can hear his voice. Those, th- those two things are necessary for us to be really led by God. Now think about this. Abram was 75 years old when this promise was given. And Genesis 21, Genesis 21 tells us that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So 25 years, right, of Abraham and Sarah waiting for the fulfillment of this promise made them a little impatient made them a little impatient because how were they going to fill the land, be fruitful and multiply? How were they going to be descendants of Abraham and Sarah in this land that God was going to give them if they didn't even know the first step to take? So they doubted and they started to work out different ways to fulfill this promise of God. But these were flesh Solutions to the problem. Remember, they were flesh. They were works of the flesh. Genesis 15, 2 through 5 tells us, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, I ha- you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be, shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. 
Eliezer was not to be the heir. See, Eliezer was just a servant in Abram's household. And he said, well, God, it's been, by this time, it's probably been about 10 years since the promise. And it hasn't come about yet. So I think we need to kind of speed things up a little bit. I, I need to help you, God, fulfill your promise. And so I'm going to make Eliezer the heir. He can carry on the name. And then, God, your promise will be fulfilled. But guess what? God rejected that. Because why? Because it was a flesh response. A flesh response to the promise. And then remember, Abram, Abraham and Sarah came up with another idea, right? How they were going to help God out. Help him fulfill his promise. In Genesis 16, 1 and 2, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her as a surrogate. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Wouldn't we call this a flesh response too? To God's promises? Abram and Sarai tried to fulfill God's promise in their flesh. And they succeeded in having a son. But it wasn't according to God's plan. It wasn't because they were being led by God. Sometimes we'll accomplish the outcome, but it isn't the way God wants us to do it. It's almost like the end justifies the means, but in God's economy, it doesn't always work like that. Because sometimes we don't know. God see, God knows the end from the beginning, right? We don't. We don't sometimes see the consequences of these flesh responses to God's promises until maybe many years down the road or maybe not even in our lifetime. Many students of the Bible and even some secular historians point to this instance right here these passages in Genesis as the historical root of the hostility between Arabs and Jews in the Middle East. And it continues to this day. The Apostle Paul also described this conflict, but in a spiritual sense. This conflict between salvation of works versus salvation by faith. In Galatians 4 Paul writes in verses 22 to 26, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. So one by Hagar, one by Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh. And he who was the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai. Again, Mount Sinai represents the law which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So one by a bondwoman, a work of the flesh, one by a free woman, a work of the spirit or of faith. 
Sometimes our flesh responses to God's promises have wide-reaching implications. God wants us to trust his promises. God wants us to trust his direction for our lives. And again, we look at his grace and we see that he may fulfill those promises even through our flesh, but it's not what he intended to do. So we looked at the fear response. We looked at the flesh response. We're going to look at one more response, and this is the faith response. This is the response that God wants us to have as he leads us and guides us. The faith response is when we hear from God and then we move out in faith into what God has promised. Now, as believers, I think most of us have experienced God's leading and direction in our lives. And I think also at times we've responded by fear, kind of being paralyzed, not being able to move forward. I know sometimes we've responded in the flesh. I know I have to the leading of God. And many times people will come in and seek counsel from the pastors and uh, for direction or guidance in their lives. And I think all of us would say that our first question to them would be, well, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? Have you sought direction from God? Have you sought his guidance in this situation from him? And sometimes we'll hear, no, we haven't. The book of James tells us sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. And this isn't about fulfilling our wish list, but this is about fulfilling God's will list for our lives. What he wants to give us, what he wants to bless us with, what's he, what his promises are to us. But we need to hear from him. Asking God for direction in our lives isn't just a good place to start. It's really the only place to start. It's the best place to start. But many cultures, even our own, including our own, I think, um, pretty dramatically, seek guidance and direction from other sources, from human sources, instead of the power of God. And many people even seek what you would call spiritual guidance or supernatural guidance, but not from God, but maybe from fortune tellers or palm readers. I mean, those businesses do great amount of, of money, make great amount of money. Or those psychic hotlines or whatever, those, those phone lines that people call up. But the Bible calls this divination. And it forbids it. The dictionary defines divination as the art or practice that seeks to foresee or foretell future events or discover hidden knowledge, usually by the interpretation of omens or by the aid of supernatural powers. And a lot of people, even Christians, do that. But Deuteronomy 18 tells us what God has to say about that. He says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire or practices witchcraft witchcraft or a soothsayer 
which is like a fortune teller, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures up spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all of you do these, who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which, which you will dispossess listened to the soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. There's one source, one supernatural source, that will lead and guide us, and it's from God only. But from the beginning of human history, man has been seeking direction from sources apart from God. You know, people want to know, what's my future employment situation look like? Who am I going to marry? You know, am I going to be rich? Am I going to be wealthy? Where am I going to live? And I know that a lot of these um, places kind of rip the people off. They take advantage of people because they want to know that. But all of these practices are rooted in the occult. It's the outcome of unbelief. They're pagan rituals that overlook or sometimes even blaspheme the name of God. And 1 John tells us in, four, in chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are other spirits. And so when someone is seeking direction or guidance through other spirits, their spirits, they're not, they're not of God. They're of Satan. So we look at all of these things, and we're going to kind of wrap up and try to put it into practice now in a practical way. We know we need to be led by God. We know that that's the best direction for our lives. But we may not know exactly how to, how to do that, how to put that into practice. We, won't, we know that we should be responding to God's voice in faith, not in fear or not in the flesh. But how do we actually practically do that? And I'm going to give us four different ways as we close up. And the first way is supplication. Supplication. Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5 says, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Oh, on you I wait all the day. That's making a request. David is asking for God's guidance in, in his life. Supplication involves praying for God to lead us. He asked God to show him his ways. We want to know God's ways. We want to know God's mind, God's heart, not our own. And then he says, teach me your paths. This is more like an, more an intimate and personal request. This is like asking your dad to take your hand and guide you through, through the woods on a dark night. God, just... Just show me, teach me your paths, and then lead me in your truth and teach me. You know, the world and the, uh, Satan will lie to us. It'll show us things that are not true. They will show us things that might seem right, but they're not of God. Only the Holy Spirit in our lives 
will lead us, the Bible says, lead us into all truth. So we want to know what's truth. Then I think we should seek counsel. There's nothing wrong with seeking counsel. In Proverbs eleven fourteen, it says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Godly counsel is protective. It's protective. But we need to have relationships with other mature believers who can help guide us by joining us in prayer and by opening God's word to us for clarity and direction. That's real, true, godly counsel. And then we need to search the scriptures, right? The first verse I ever memorized when I was a believer is Psalm 119, verse 105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I always think about that. You know, sometimes we need, we, we ask God for a big spotlight that it's going to light up um, our future. But most times he gives us more of a little flashlight just to light the path in front of us. That next step. You know, and as we study God's word, he's going to give us direction. We need to allow God to light our path. So we don't stumble through this world. And then as we step out in faith, he'll give us that next step. I think about Abram, you know, give, tell, God telling him, go to a place where I will show you. Okay, I'll start stepping out, Lord. And then the, na- the last thing we need to do is submit. We need to submit to God. You know, we talked about the promise, right? And the commandment, how sometimes they go hand in hand in our lives. And God establishes this principle of submission. Of submission. Hupotasso in the Greek. To arrange under. To submit to one's control. To yield. To obey. And this is, a, this is really a military term in the Greek. It means to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. But in non-military use, it's a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility. Voluntarily, we need to submit under God's guidance and direction in our lives. And this principle of submission applies to a lot of different relationships that we have. And it's a principle that needs to follow through all of the relationships because it's a principle of humility. It's a principle of submission. It's a principle of yielding. Yielding of our own desires so that we consider others greater than ourselves. Being led by God is something that we all should desire. In our lives. And there's going to be times that come up in each of our lives that we really need direction from God. There's a, there's a transition. There's a change. There's something that's coming up that you really need to hear from the Lord. Well, I think as we 
request those things in supplication, as we seek godly counsel, as we search the scriptures, and as we submit to God, we'll find the plan and the, and the guidance that God has for us. But it involves having a relationship with God. It's the only way that it can happen. And so there's one more promise of God that God makes throughout the Bible that we need to submit to before we can do any of this. And that is that promise of salvation, that promise of everlasting life. And like many of the promises that God makes, it's a promise that's activated by our faith. It says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The promise is salvation. Stepping out is confessing and believing. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages. If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.